Thank you, music team. Good morning. Okay, I'm in trouble already because I'm already crying. Um, That was a beautiful song. Good morning, ladies. It is so good to see all of you here today. I'm so glad that you are here. Hasn't this book of Daniel been outstanding? Yes. Thank you for um, coming back. I was here the very first week. My name is Deb Haygood, and I'm so glad to see you coming back and finishing up strong this semester. Daniel's been a great example of finishing strong. We've seen him um, resolve at the age of 16 to be faithful to God and all through his life, and now he's in his 80s. He has been faithful to God, and we want to finish strong Um, As well, we only have two more weeks after today. Can you believe it? And then we're going to take a break for the Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year's holidays. And we'll come back January the 12th. And we will be studying the Gospel of Mark. Um, An exciting book. And if you want to get a little head start, then take an hour and a half sometime in your holiday season and sit down and read the Gospel of Mark from start to finish. It is a powerful look at Jesus. And I know that you will be blessed. But today we are looking at Daniel chapter 9. We are back to prophecy which is fun for some and not so much for others, but we are back to prophecy. And in the beginning, we said that the book of Daniel was divided up into six stories and four visions. And the six stories are chapters 1 through 6, and the four visions happen in chapters 7 through 12. Well, we've looked at all six stories, and we've had two of the visions. Lynn Kitchens came and um, told us the visions in chapter 7 and chapter 8. And now in chapter 9, we're going to look at the third vision. And then next week, um, for the next two weeks, Shelley Davis will come, and she is going to talk about the fourth vision in chapters 10 through 12. That's how we're going to finish up. So today is chapter 9, and I am so excited about chapter 9. I think it could be my favorite chapter in the book of Daniel. In chapter 9, we have this third vision, and those last four verses of chapter 9 are some of the most sweeping prophecy in the whole Bible. But it's not the prophecy that causes me to love this chapter. It's Daniel's amazing prayer. Daniel's amazing prayer. This prophecy comes to Daniel because Daniel prayed, and God answered. Daniel heard God. Now, I have a story about hearing God. My grandson, Dylan, is um, just barely five years old, and his dad reads um, this devotional book with him every night before he goes to bed. And one night recently, uh, Dylan said, Sometimes when I'm playing alone, I hear someone talking to me. I think it must be God. And Mike paused a second, and then he said, Well, I think so. I think God can talk to us. And then Dylan paused and said, Or maybe it's a car outside. (laughs) And I laughed when my daughter told me that because I thought, hey, I've been there. You know, is that you, God, or is that a car outside? But Daniel wasn't confused. He knew it was God because God sent the angel Gabriel to tell him this prophecy. So let's begin reading. Turn to chapter 9, verse 1. We have a lot to cover um, today. Uh, And I have prayed and prayed all week that this would be clear, um, that God would use these words, and that this would be clear to you. So let's uh, begin with verse 1. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom. 
So this is the year 539 BC. And we've said before Cyrus is king of the Medo-Persian Empire and they have defeated Babylon. And Darius is probably someone that Cyrus has appointed to rule over Babylon. Some think that he might be one of the generals that actually was involved in the battle that defeated Babylon. You remember that, the um, night of Belshazzar's scary banquet with the handwriting on the wall, um, chapter 5. And so we see in verse 2, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord, given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting, and in sackcloth and ashes. So we see here that Daniel is reading the scripture. He is reading the word of God. Now we don't know how much scripture um, Daniel had, but we know that Daniel knew the word of God. He knew the law. So we're not surprised that he's reading it. We, uh, he has known it way back in chapter 1. He knew God's laws. Maybe he had the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Maybe he had some of David's Psalms. Maybe he had some of the history books, Samuel, and the Kings, and the Chronicles. But we know for sure that he had the book of Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah was a prophet that lived during the last five kings of Judah, right before the captivity. So he lived right after Isaiah, right before Daniel. And he was telling the same message that Isaiah told, that um, they needed to turn back to God because the Babylonian captivity would be um, their discipline if they did not turn back. And so we see that Daniel is um, reading in Jeremiah. We looked at that in the homework. And on your verse sheet, we have lots of papers today. I put one verse, Jeremiah 25, and I just wanted to read that. This whole country will become a wasteland, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. But when the 70 years are fulfilled, I will punish the king of Babylon and his nation, the land of the Babylonians, for their guilt, declares the Lord. So Daniel knows he's reading the word of God and he receives insight. He knows from God's word that the desolation of Jerusalem will last 70 years. And he also knows that the 70 years are almost up. How does he know that? For one, he went into captivity in 605 BC. So he's been in captivity over 66 years. The second way he knows is just from this scripture. The Babylonians have been defeated by the Persians, and that's what Jeremiah had prophesied here. So he knows the 70 years is almost up, and this moves Daniel to pray. He is motivated to pray. Daniel has developed a pattern, a habit of prayer throughout his life, of prayer and probably reading God's word every day. <clears throat> Last week we read that Daniel prayed before God three times a day. His relationship and his worship of God was deep and it was intimate. He knows God. The word of God is how we know God. It's how we know God. It's how we know um, who God is. We know that um, he, he is eternal. We know the truth of God. God's word is true. And God's word is eternal. And it will stand forever. I have a couple of verses on your verse sheet. Let me just read Psalm 119, 160. It says, all your words are true. All your righteous laws are eternal. The word of God will stand forever. And God's word gives us insight and strength and hope as we get to know him. Reading God's word led Daniel to pray. 
And I think it should lead us to pray. We read God's word and we hear him speaking to us. And then we speak back to him. And that's prayer. Listening to God and talking to God and listening to God some more. So let's look at this prayer of Daniel and see what we can learn from it. Verse 3 says, So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. So we see in verse 3, the very first thing, I turned to the Lord. He turned to the Lord. And the word there for Lord is Adonai. And it's a reverent word for God. It means master. It means sovereign ruler. So I see that Daniel's attitude before God is reverent. Then he says, I pleaded with him in prayer and petition and in fasting. Pleaded. You get that sense of earnestness and intensity. This prayer is serious. Daniel's attitude before God is serious. Fasting is the same way we see this attitude of seriousness. Fasting is when we abstain from something um, important and necessary for our daily life activity. And we abstain, we fast so that we can go to God in prayer and seek his will. And this is what Daniel was doing. Now we often think of fasting from food, but um, you can fast from many different things. So Daniel is fasting. He's serious about this prayer, and he's in sackcloth and ashes. Now, sackcloth was that coarse, dark material made from goat's hair, and ashes they put on their face and on their head. And this was a sign of mourning, of mourning in grief or repentance. And I see humility in David, and I know many of you did as well when you read this. David has an attitude of humility. So before Daniel, am I saying David? Okay, I hope not. But anyway, before Daniel says anything to God, he um, has his attitude before God that is reverent and it's serious and it's humble. And so let's look what he says. Verse 4, I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed. Okay, now let's stop here for a second and look at that word, Lord, um, because it's all in capital letters. And so that means that it is the Hebrew word Yahweh. It's the Israel name for God that was the personal name. It was the name for their covenant God, Yahweh. And interestingly, this is the first time we've seen Yahweh in the book of Daniel. And we're only going to see it. In um, chapter 9. We're going to see it a couple more times in this prayer. Um, But we see it first uh, and only in chapter 9. So he prays to Yahweh and he says, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with all who love him and obey his commands. The first thing Daniel does is he begins with praise. Now on your outline, you have the um, words there. uh, Adoration. Confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. And under the first letter, I've underlined it, and those letters, A-C-T-S, spell ACTS. And that's an acronym that some people use as a pattern for prayer. Um, You go in that order, adoration, confession, uh, thanksgiving, and supplication. How many of you have heard of that, have prayed using ACTS? Yeah, almost all of you. I thought it was really cool that Daniel's prayer also follows along um, in this pattern. Now, Daniel is not the first guy to begin his prayer with praise and adoration. Many do that in the Old Testament. We see Moses' prayer, and David has a prayer, Solomon, Nehemiah. 
They all pray, beginning with praise at one time or another. And we see Jesus, when he gave us the pattern for prayer in the Lord's Prayer, he begins by saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. He begins that prayer with praise. Adoration is our response in praise to the greatness and goodness of God. It's our response in praise to the greatness and goodness of God. And that very first prayer that you might have learned as a young child, God is great and God is good. Let us thank him for our food. It began with praise, with adoration for God. When we begin with adoration, we are proclaiming the attributes of God. And so in our thinking, God becomes bigger and we become smaller. And that is the proper perspective we are to have. That is humility. Seeing God for who he is. He is the creator. You know, sometimes we begin to think it's all about me, but it's not about me. I'm not the center of God's story. God is the center of his story. And I am the object of God's love. So I'm important because I am the object of his love. I am the object of his creation and of his redemption. But God is the sovereign creator, God of the universe. When we begin with praise, we remember that. We see the greatness and the glory of God, and it helps us to put our burdens and our needs in the proper perspective. If you have prayed by praising God first, then you know that this is true. Um, how many of you have heard of Moms in Touch? Moms in Touch International, a lot of you. It's an organization, international organization, where moms come together from different schools and pray for their children and for the school and all the things connected to that. And I was in Moms in Touch from the time my kids were in elementary school. Clear through, I prayed with this one gal, um, clear through our, our sons being in college. And they used that acronym, A-C-T-S. And so we would come in and we would be anxious or fretful or worried about something. But you're not supposed to talk. You're just supposed to sit down and begin to pray. And so we would sit down and we would begin to praise God, the adoration part. And as we went around the circle praising God, by the time we got to supplication, when we were giving our requests, you could tell that there was a difference in our attitude. There was a confidence in God and the answers he would give. There was a joy in the Lord as we prayed. That's what happens when you begin your prayers with adoration. And then we see, so we see Daniel praising God for his great and awesomeness and for his covenant love. And that word there for love is hesed, which means loyal love. So he's praising God for this covenant of loyal love for his people. And then he turns to confession. Verse 5. We have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. The men of Judah and people of Jerusalem and all Israel, both near and far, in all the countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you, Oh, Lord, we and our kings, our princes and our fathers are covered with shame because we have sinned against you. The Lord, our God, is merciful and forgiving, even though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the Lord, our God, or kept the laws he gave us through his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. 
Many verses he spends on confession, and he's not quite finished yet. Confession is honesty before God about our sin and guilt. It's realizing that um, the power of sin and the need to go to God for forgiveness. What strikes me when I uh, look at verse 5 is that Daniel begins this part of confession with the word we. Now, we know Daniel's a sinner, but through the book of Daniel, we see him as um, faithfully obeying and following after God. But Daniel wants to identify with Israel because they are his people. They are God's people. He is a part of them. And so his prayer is not for himself alone, but it's for his people, the nation Israel. And so he identifies with them and he acknowledges their sin as his sin. And what is the sin of the Israelites? It's said in many different ways here, but it was rebellion against God. It was turning away from God. They turned away from God. And we know that all the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, um, Ezekiel, Amos, Hosea, Micah, Zephaniah, all those prophets were saying, turn back to God. He loves you. He wants to bless you. Turn back to him. And if you don't, know this. Captivity is coming. You will be disciplined. And disaster will come upon you. But they did not listen. And so captivity has come. Let's quit, uh, keep reading in verse 12. It says, You have fulfilled the words spoken against us and against our rulers by bringing upon us great disaster. Under the whole heaven, nothing has ever done, has ever been done like what has been done to Jerusalem. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us. Yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord. Here's Yahweh, our God, by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. Yahweh did not hesitate to bring the disaster upon us. For Yahweh, our God, is righteous in everything he does. Yet we have not obeyed him. How sad this must be for Daniel. So now they're in captivity and they still have not repented and turned back to God and followed him. Daniel acknowledges that God is righteous and that this punishment has not been too great. Because even in this punishment, they have not become obedient to God. And then verse 15, he says, Now, O Lord, our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and who made for yourself a name that endures to this day... We have sinned. We have done wrong. Now, I call this part the Thanksgiving part because Thanksgiving is gratitude for what God has done. And I think that Daniel, even though the Israelites have been unfaithful, he remembers God is faithful. God is still faithful. And he uh, remembers God's faithfulness, and I think with gratitude, as he remembers how God delivered the Israelites out of Egypt by his mighty hand. And as he remembers this about God, then he goes into his time of petition, his time of supplication. Supplication is asking God for something. It's a request. It's the same thing as a petition. When you look up supplication in the dictionary, it says to humbly and earnestly ask. And so in verse 16, we see Daniel humbly and earnestly asking God for these things. O Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. Our sins and the iniquities of our fathers have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. 
Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, O Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, O God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, listen. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, hear and act. For your sake, O my God, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. So Daniel humbly and earnestly petitions God, and he asks God, To look with favor on Jerusalem, his holy city, and to forgive his people. And these verbs that we see here, turn away your anger, look with favor, hear and see, listen, forgive, act, do not delay. And why should God answer Daniel's prayer? Daniel says, not because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Now, we've talked about uh, God's mercy in Daniel already. Amy talked about it in chapter 2, and then Vanita talked about it in chapter 4. And here, Daniel is now asking God for his great mercy. Mercy is undeserved kindness and compassion. And Daniel also asks God to answer this prayer for his own sake, for God's sake, because his people and his city bear his name, and their shame reflects on God. And what strikes me is that Daniel does not specifically tell God how to answer this prayer. He tells him all the things he wants, but he doesn't tell him specifically how he should do it. And I thought about my own prayers, and I think, how many times do I think I know how God should do what I'm asking? And so I'm very specific. You know, sometimes it's okay to be specific, but sometimes we're so specific that we don't give God a chance to work. And then when he does work, we miss it because we've been looking for this specific prayer. Daniel doesn't do that. He tells God what he wants, what he's asking for, and then he lets God work. I've thought a lot about my prayers after looking at this um, prayer of Daniel. And I thought, what do I ask of God? Am I asking for what will bring God glory? Or am I even thinking about God's glory? Do I ask God for what will further his kingdom? Am I asking what is his will? When Jesus gave us the model prayer, the Lord's Prayer, he taught the disciples to say, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And I think the more that I am motivated to pray by reading God's word and by talking with God often, then my prayers may reflect this um, attitude of petition that is asking in line with God's will. That's what we see Daniel doing in this prayer. So let's move on and look at God's answer. And we're going to see that in verses 20. Beginning in verse 20 and 21, there's a lot of things we could say about this prayer, but um, we want to move on to God's answer. So let's read verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people, Israel, and making my request to the Lord, my God, for his holy hill, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. So the first thing I see about God's answer is that it comes quickly. 
Daniel's still praying. It comes quickly. Now, God doesn't answer all of our prayers that quickly. Sometimes we pray for something for years. But sometimes God does answer our prayers that quickly. I think all of you in this room probably can think of a time that you asked God for something. And as soon as you got up or shortly thereafter, God answered the prayer. God answers this prayer quickly. In fact, Daniel is still praying and God has to interrupt Daniel with the angel Gabriel. Now, we've seen Gabriel before in chapter 7 and chapters 8, and he is the messenger angel. It says that he came in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. Now, I want to talk a second about the evening sacrifice because I think this is pretty um, exciting here. Um, We know that the evening sacrifice is at 3 in the afternoon, so this is 3 p.m. when Daniel is praying. And there are two times of sacrifice required by the law, set back in Exodus. One is in the morning and one is in the evening. And this is the evening sacrifice at 3 p.m. And at these times, a lamb was sacrificed for the sin of um, the people of Israel. So as I was looking at this and thinking about the lamb and the sacrifice, it made me think of Jesus. And we sang that song, Jesus, the lamb of God, he is our sacrifice, our sin sacrifice. And so I began to go back and look in Luke, um, and this is, um, was pretty amazing to me, in Luke 23, about the crucifixion. And verse 44 says, And darkness came on the land for three hours, from noon until three. And at three, it says, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, It is finished. Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And then he breathed his last. And I thought, Jesus, the Lamb of God, our sacrifice, died on the cross at 3 o'clock in the afternoon at the time of the evening sacrifice. So Daniel is praying at 3 o'clock in the afternoon because that was his habit. That was his practice. Daniel chose to worship God at this time of the evening sacrifice. We know that Daniel prayed three times a day. One of the other times might have been during the morning. Probably was the morning sacrifice. And this was the evening sacrifice. And it says that he prayed facing Jerusalem. We learned that last week. Now, um, he's facing Jerusalem. And if the temple had been standing and the priests still around, they would be offering up the lamb as the sacrifice for their sin. Three o'clock, Daniel is praying. And in Psalm 141.2, it tells us this. May my prayer be set before you like incense. May the lifting up of my hands be like the evening sacrifice. I think Daniel knew this psalm. I think this was Daniel's evening sacrifice, a spiritual sacrifice of prayer lifted up to God. And then Hebrews tells us, and I think this is pretty neat, Hebrews 13, through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. Do you see that, ladies? We can offer up sacrifices to God, spiritual sacrifices, um, sacrifice of praise, of sharing with others, of doing good deeds. That's what we do every Thursday morning when we come in and we praise God with our song and we lift up praises to the Lord. We are offering up a sacrifice of praise to God.
And then we're going to go on and read verse 22. He instructed me and he said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. So the second thing that I learn about um, God's answer to Daniel is that it is going to give him insight and understanding. What insight and understanding? What's he looking for here? Well, in chapters 7 and 8, Daniel learned um, about the immediate future and the uh, near-distant future and far-distant future that was going to happen to the Gentiles. And some of that included the Jews. It was going to be a hard time for them as well. So Daniel is probably thinking, what about God's plan for his people, the Jew? What about the Messiah? What about God's kingdom on earth? We know when we read Isaiah that we read much about this. We saw um, in Isaiah that there was going to be a Messiah that comes and that there was going to be a millennial kingdom. And Daniel is asking God, what about that? So God is going to give Daniel insight about God's program and God's purposes for his people. Let's read verse 23. As soon as you began to pray, an answer was given, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the message and understand the vision. Daniel learns in verse 23 that he is highly esteemed. And we're not surprised by that because God has, because Daniel had spent his whole uh, life developing his relationship with God. He had spent time every day with God. You know, I thought I was sitting on my porch swing when I was reading this. It's out in the yard, actually, but um, I love it. The kids gave it to me for Mother's Day. I sit there a lot, and I thought, you know, what if I had a friend that came by every day and sat down in this swing, and I never came out to sit with them. I was too busy. I was too distracted. You know, my friend would not highly esteem me. In fact, she would probably quit coming to see me. And I thought, the good thing about Jesus, he's a friend that never quits coming. He is always there when we go to him. And when we go to him day in and day out, it develops this relationship that's deep. It takes time and it takes consistency. Daniel did that. And we see that he is highly esteemed by God. What encouraging words this must have been for Daniel. What strength this must have given him to hear Gabriel say that. And then we also see... That the message, that he is giving him a message and uh, it's called a vision. So the third thing I see about God's answer is that it is a vision. Another prophecy. So before you start getting scared, okay, here comes the prophecy. Let me remind you, let me review what we've talked about with prophecy. Prophecy strengthens our heart. It increases our faith. It provides us with hope and peace. And it keeps us grounded in truth. Prophecy authenticates God's plan throughout history. When prophecy comes to pass, we have proof of God's truth. The truth that he is sovereign and he loves us. So let's look at this prophecy. Now, it's a little confusing. I'm going to explain it as we go. But um, remember that this prophecy is for the nation Israel. This was given to Daniel to tell him the program and purposes for the Jews. So it's given to the nation Israel. Also, we have the benefit of knowing that Jesus came to earth the first time as our sacrifice. And he's coming back again a second time as the king. And that also helps us to interpret this. So let's read verse 24. Seventy-sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, 
to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Now, 77s, that word seven there, um, you've probably looked it up, or your translation may say weeks. That refers to seven years. So 70 times seven years would be 490 years. And the number seven, we don't have time to talk about it a lot, but that was an important number to God. It um, signified completion and perfection. And so these numbers would have made sense to Daniel to see these sevens. And so in this 490 years, there's going to be six things that um, God has decreed for the nation Israel. And the first three have to do with sin. Finish transgression, put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness. And that is exactly what Daniel has been praying about. He's been asking God what, uh, and confessing the sins of the Jewish people, talking about their transgressions, and now God tells him he is going to put an end to it. He is going to atone for it. How? Well, we know that Jesus would reconcile their sin by being the sacrifice, the Lamb of God that dies on the cross, sheds his blood to atone for their sin and for our sin as well. He atones for the sins of Israel and for our sins as well. And we're going to talk about our sin in just um, a minute. And then these last three things that we read here have to do with righteousness. And Jesus is going to cause this to come to pass when he comes the second time. And that is to bring in everlasting righteousness. There's your millennial kingdom. To seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. When Jesus comes again at the end of the tribulation and he is victorious in the battle of Armageddon. He defeats the Antichrist and he establishes the millennial kingdom. And he reigns in Jerusalem. And scripture tells us that the Jews will have accepted Jesus as their Messiah. And that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. So there will be no need for prophecy. The prophets came on the scene during a dark time in Israel. Uh, the prophets were God's mouthpiece, calling them back to him, reminding them of his love for them. There will be no need for that as we all worship Uh, Jesus in the millennial kingdom. And then that uh, place where it says to anoint the most holy, that could mean one of two things. It could be uh, when they dedicate the temple in the millennial kingdom, or it could be when Jesus Christ um, takes the throne and reigns in Jerusalem as the king of kings. In Daniel's prayer, all of it is answered with this um, vision. We see that the sins of Israel will be forgiven, the city will be rebuilt, and the temple will be restored. And then in verse 25, it kind of breaks down these next few verses, this 490 years. What's going to happen there? And it says, um, verse 25, Know and understand this, from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. So we see here that this uh, 490 years, uh, the beginning of the 77s, happens when a decree is issued to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Okay, when did that decree 
um, when was it issued? Now, we know um, from Scripture that the very next year after Daniel's prayer that Cyrus is going to issue a decree saying that the Jews can begin to go back to Jerusalem. And, in fact, they did. But they began by building um, the temple, rebuilding the temple. It wasn't until Nehemiah, and we read this in the book of Nehemiah, some years later that his brother comes to tell him, he's been in Jerusalem, what rubble, what um, shambles the city of Jerusalem is in. The wall is broken down. And Nehemiah is so grieved by that that he goes to the king, first he prays, and then he goes to the king and he asks for permission to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. And um, we read in Nehemiah 2.8, it says, And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my request. King Artaxerxes issues a decree for, Daniel, uh, for Nehemiah to go back and to begin building the wall. And we know that that was in 444 BC. We even know it was in the month of March because Nehemiah tells us that in chapter 2. So 444 BC, the decree is issued to rebuild the uh, walls of Jerusalem. And now we know that this 490 years has begun. And there's seven sevens, that's 49 years. And then there's 62 sevens. And that's, um, uh uh-oh, I can't, forgot, 430, what is it, on our outline there, 434 years. And, by the way, you might want to get your chart out and look at that. That might help you to see. So, um, the first 49 years, they're rebuilding the walls and the city of Jerusalem, and they continue to rebuild the temple, and also during this time... The anointed one comes. The anointed one, we looked up in scriptures, that is a reference to Jesus, the Messiah. And it says that it will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. And if you read in Nehemiah, you know the rebuilding of the walls met much opposition. There were many that um, were uh, opposing, were coming from the outside and fighting. And it says even in one verse that they held a weapon in one hand and did their work with the other. So this uh, is also has come to pass, that they rebuilt the city in times of trouble. And then in verse 26, it talks more about the 62 sevens. It says, after the 62 sevens, which that's the 434 years, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. Now, the anointed one is Jesus, and that word cut off actually means to execute the death penalty. So this is referring to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And if you add that up, From um, 444 B.C. until 33 A.D. when Jesus was crucified. If you look at it with the um, Jewish calendar, that is exactly 483 years. And then at the end of this verse 26, we have a gap. We have a gap before verse 27. The end of 26 says, The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. Also, I didn't read the part, The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. So the people of the ruler, let me explain that. The ruler here is referring to the Antichrist. And we learned a lot about the Antichrist um, when Lynn... uh, Talk to us in chapter 7 and chapters 8. And um, the Antichrist, it says, 
will come. So he hasn't come yet. But those people, we know he was the little horn of the Roman Empire. So the people refer to the Romans. And we know from history that the city and the sanctuary of Jerusalem were destroyed under the Roman ruler Titus in 70 AD. So that part of verse 26 has happened. And then there's a gap at the end, and we know that during this gap time that the Jews have suffered much war, much desolation, but also during this gap time, many Gentiles will come to know God through Jesus Christ. We as believers are called the church. This is the time for the Gentiles to come in to the kingdom. Now, it doesn't talk about this because this is a prophecy to the Jewish people. But we know there is this gap, and you see it on your chart. And I also have a couple of verses that I want to read um, that are very important to this because this is about us. Romans 11, Paul, who was the evangelist to the Gentiles, talks a lot about... um, the uh, Jews and the Gentiles and the Gentiles coming into the kingdom. And verse um, 1 in Romans 11 says, Again I ask, this is Paul speaking, Did they stumble, referring to the Jews, so as to fall beyond recovery? No, not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. So Israel is going to come back to the Lord. Paul tells us this here, and we know this from this prophecy. But during this time, um, before they come back, the Gentiles are gathered in. It is God's plan. And we know that from Isaiah 49, 6. And this is a very important verse for us. He says, and this is Jesus talking about what God has said to him. God the Son telling us what God the Father said. He says, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant and restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I've kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. So it was God's plan that Jesus would atone for our sin as well as for the sins of Israel. It was his plan from the very beginning when he made his covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12. So there's this gap time, and at the end of this, this is where the church, God's church, this is called the church age, that's where we are right now, and at the end of this um, church age, right before the tribulation begins, we will be raptured. Jesus will come down in the clouds, and with a loud shout and a trumpet blast, we will um, meet him and be with him in heaven. And then, verse 27, this is the beginning of the tribulation. He refers to the Antichrist, and it says, He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on a wing of the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. So from this verse, we see that the Antichrist is going to come, and he will make some sort of peace treaty with the nation Israel. And then he's going to break that after three and a half years. It says he will do away with sacrifice. And he is going to set up this abomination of desolation. Now Jesus talked about this. And you looked at that scripture in Matthew. And it's going to be such an awful time. Worse, a time of distress worse than anything that we've ever experienced before. um, Or that they will ever experience um, after that. 
And this um, abomination of desolation, we don't know for sure what that is. There were some scriptures that uh, the Antichrist will set up an image of himself and require the world to worship it. It could be that. But this three and a half years, this last half of the seven years, is going to be a great time of distress. But we know that at the end of this time, it says the end that is decreed is poured out on him. And that is a reference to Jesus Christ coming back in the battle of Armageddon and defeating the Antichrist. And then Jesus will set up his millennial kingdom where he will reign. Hallelujah. As we get to the end of that. Jesus is coming back and the Antichrist will be defeated. So what does this prophecy mean to me? You know, it's nice to know God's plan for the Jews makes me want to... Stay friends with Israel, for sure. Um, But the main thing it tells me is that God is sovereign and that God has a plan and that he has a purpose and a plan for his people as well as for us. And that Jesus came the first time exactly when God had um, prepared for him to come. God knew when he was going to when he was coming. We can have confidence. We see that in this book of Daniel, that he came. Because when you add up the years from 444 to 33 AD in the Jewish calendar, and I put that at the end of your um, verse sheet, it's exactly 483 years. Exactly. So we can have confidence to know that Jesus is going to come back exactly in perfect timing, exactly when he should come back. And these things are going to happen in that last seven years. And when you add that to 483, then you get your 490 years. This prophecy is pretty exciting. But this chapter 9 for me is about prayer. It's about praying and hearing God's answer. And so I wanted to take away three things um, about my prayer life. Quickly, let me give those to you. One, my motivation for prayer is important. I want my prayers to be motivated by God's word and God's will. Secondly, our attitude before God is important. I want to have a humble and reverent attitude before God. And third, our practice of prayer is important. Our habit, our persistence in prayer is important. I want to pray often and consistently and persistently. I want to talk to God every day. Let me close with Luke 18.1. It says, Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. Always pray pray. Ladies, study the word and always pray. Let's pray right now. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word, your word that um, gives us insight, that strengthens us, that brings us joy, that helps us to know you, Lord. Thank you for this chapter nine, that we can see you do have a plan and you do have a purpose. And thank you for including us in it, Lord. Father, I pray for these women in this room that this word that you've brought to us, that um, it would give us um, insight and understanding, that it would be clear to us, that it would cause us to have great confidence in you, that our faith would be deepened. Lord, that we would love you more. Father, bless these women. Bless us as we go out. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.